I'd invite you to open your copy of the scriptures and make your way to John chapter 5. I know we were supposed to be in John 6, and you've all slept since three weeks ago. So um, I did say that we ran out of time. You might have been thankful for that that day and then forgotten that we were going to finish chapter 5. And so that's where we're at this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 5 in verse 31 through 47. Have you ever given, well, have you ever been in the room where a trial is taking place? Ever been called to serve as a juror? Or maybe you were called to, to give testimony in a trial? Or maybe you were the object of that case? I'll never forget as a junior in college, I was pulled over for speeding and uh, I didn't have the money to pay the fine. It was pretty big. I was speeding pretty big. Um, And I was a poor college student. So somebody, one of my roommates said, hey, if you go before the judge, you can kind of plead and they'll probably lower it for you. And it seemed as though I were standing before that judge it seemed like his, his bench was like three feet above my head. I felt like such a small child. And he's like, why should I lower this? And I could just say, because I'm poor. I don't have money to pay the fine. And he said, you're going to pay the fine. And that was it. That was my moment in the sun. In a trial, there's usually three elements. There is the prosecution, the one who is bringing the charges and who is attempting to prove guilt. There is the defendant who is seeking to prove their innocence. And then there is a judge. Sometimes there is a jury. And the judge and the jury must hear the facts and render a verdict that is consistent with the law and the facts presented. In our passage this morning, I believe that Jesus is actually presenting a legal argument. He's presenting a case. God has sent him into the world to give eternal life to those who believe in him. That is the argument that Jesus is making. We see it back in verse 24 of John chapter 5. Jesus says that the Father has given him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And I believe what Jesus is doing here in our passage in verses 31 through 36, first, he's making his case and he is going to bring to uh, their attention three irrefutable witnesses. And then in verses 37 through 47, Jesus takes up his role as a prosecutor. What seems to begin as he is the defendant who is defending his innocence. No, indeed, I have a divine witness. I have a human witness. I have these miraculous signs that only God can do that prove I was sent from God. Then he takes on the tone in verses 37 through 47, of that of a prosecutor. And he turns to his audience and he argues their guilt and closes with what may be a word of hope. So I want to just repeat the big idea as I see it. Christ was sent into this world to give eternal life to those who believe in him. And we're going to see that first in verses 31 through 36 as Jesus presents witnesses that prove his divinity and authority. So follow along as I read from John chapter 5, verse 31 through 36. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Every parent knows that, right? One of your kids says he does one thing, another one. It's it's the second voice that usually carries more weight, right? And then if you got more than two kids, it's the third voice. So Jesus recognizes a rule of the natural order, and in fact, this comes from Scripture. No one is declared guilty or innocent 
innocent based on one voice. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive from man is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So in these few verses, Jesus has already outlined his case, his argument. He brings us first to the divine witness in verses 31 and 32. If everything depended on Jesus' own testimony, it must be false. Jesus recognized that. Not because his words were not true, but simply according to the standards of that day and set forth in the law in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, which required judgment based not on the word of the plaintiff or the single testimony of the defendant, but of the mouths of two or three witnesses. And after that, Jesus makes it clear that all he says and does is according to God's will. We see that back in verse, 20, uh, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. <clears throat> Therefore, everything that he does is according to the will of the Father. And he is going to now take up the holy name of God to defend himself. There must be other supporting witnesses. So we see in verses 31 and 32, there is a divine witness. Jesus in verse 32, says there is another who testifies about him. He's referring to the Father, which is to say that God is testifying to you and I that Jesus is the Christ, that we must believe in in order to have eternal life. Now, what's clear is that Jesus does not expect those who are hearing him to actually capitulate, to believe in him. If you go back to chapter 2 and verses 24 and 25, Jesus, John records that Jesus knew the very thoughts of the men. He knew that they, what was in man, and therefore he did not entrust himself to them. You see, God knows your heart, whether you're playing at Christianity or whether you are a real Christian. You may fool us, even though we do interviews as we receive members into the body of South Canyon Baptist Church and the elders will sit down with them in a room in the conference room or in their house across the table from them and ask them questions and ask them to point out ways in which they can demonstrate God is at work in them. You may be able to fool us, but no one can fool God. So why does Jesus continue debating them and rebuking them if he knows their hearts? Well, we find the answer to that question in Jesus' own words. Back in 19, verse 19 through 29, Jesus described himself in the third person. If you go back and read through that this afternoon, you'll see that over and over he refers to himself in the third person. Now, in verse 30 through 47, he shifts predominantly to use the first person, I, me, my. What's significant about that? What does that demonstrate? Jesus wants to make this point very clear, that when you reject the Father's testimony, you reject Jesus. It's a very personal thing. He is a personal Savior. We don't believe the Scriptures teach universalism. We believe that all who are called by the name of the Lord shall, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It requires a confession of faith. He is a personal Savior. And when you reject that salvation, you are rejecting the very God who took on flesh. It's no abstract theological argument. Can God make a rock so big he cannot lift it? No, Jesus says, I want you to understand, you have rejected me. And we observe two realities in this passage. In the face of growing persecution, what does Jesus do? He remains bold and true because he knew his identity was rooted in his Father. 
the relationship that they had together as father and son, that was a ballast for him. It was an anchor that kept him upright and secure in every storm. Jesus knew who he was, and therefore he was not swayed by them trying to push him away from God. Second, Jesus skillfully brought his enemies' opposition and unbelief into the light for the purpose that they might believe. Jesus is not just trying to get them in a gotcha hold. He is trying to convince them of their own stubbornness and blindness and deafness to his words. He wants to see them believe. Isn't this a God who's gracious? How many times have you been in a setting like this or interacted with a coworker or a friend, a relative, and they share the gospel with you? They talk to you about a need for real conversion and real change, and you're just kind of like, meh, that's not for me. That's not for me. I'm not interested in it. Jesus had done this with these people, and yet he's still eager to see them believe in him for their salvation. Jesus moves on quickly from his first witness, a divine one, to a second witness, which is a human one. So you'll notice in verses 33 through 35 that Jesus highlights the contemporary and public testimony of John the baptizer. Now, John was alive when Jesus was alive. And to have someone whom all the world around there believed was a prophet of God, having that person say, behold the Lamb of God, and pointing to Jesus is a pretty profound thing. You will never hear that being said about me. You will not hear that being said about anyone else. John was highly regarded. And even while the Jewish leaders struggled to figure out how John's ministry fit within the broader story of the Jews and their history, they were still attracted to John. They had a respect for him. It was clear he was a moral and upright man. It was clear his whole passion was to call people to repentance, to call them back to the holy way. And yet John is testifying to the Jewish leadership in chapter 1 about who Jesus is. He identified Jesus in chapter, the later part of chapter 1 as the Lamb of God and the Spirit-anointed Son. And just as quickly as Jesus introduces John as a witness, he says that he doesn't need human testimony to validate himself in verse 34. So why did Jesus bring up John? Well, look again at verse 34. I say these things so that you may be saved. The you in the first audience was those Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus. They saw him as a threat. The you of today's audience is y'all and me. Jesus is saying, I want you to know, I'm not just grabbing divine religious language and wrongly appropriating it to myself. I want you to know also that there is someone who is walking among you who recognizes and sees these same things about me. I want to show you a human witness. It's almost as Jesus is saying, you know, I mentioned John, you know, one of your heroes. He's considered a prophet by all. Have you heard the incredible things that he said about me? Well, let me just tell you, if you listen to what he is saying, you will start following the path that leads to your own salvation. And we know that's true because we see it in chapter 1 and verse 40. Andrew, one of John's own disciples, did. He took what John said about Jesus and he left John and became a follower of Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in verse 35 that John was a light in a dark world. Which takes us back to chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9 where it says that the word came into the world and the light entered the world. So John isn't acting on his own. After 400 years of silence from God, the people of Israel are now hearing God through a prophet. It had to excite the sensitivities of the culture. As people came to hear John, they they must have had some expectation, some joy, some fervor was starting to catch people. Revival is sweeping through Judea and Jerusalem. 
People's lives are being changed. John spoke to soldiers. He spoke to tax collectors. He talked to sinners. He talked to the Jewish leaders. He rebuked them. He called them to repentance and faith over and over. Even he speaks to government officials in Matthew 14. And these people experience a transformation that profoundly reshapes their lives so that homes and families and communities are being changed You know that each and every one of us has the blessing of living in a culture that even in its current state still has vestiges of Christianity stamped upon it. There's a moral morality that still exists. Going around and just killing anybody, that's not allowed. There's consequences for that. We all live in a world where don't we want the golden rule to be applied to us? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Don't you want to be the you that's receiving that? Don't we want to go into a store knowing that when we buy something there that it's, it's real and it's going to be, as it's described, it will be reliable and safe? We, we trust. There's an element of honesty. There's an element of righteousness and morality that still exists in our society. And we benefit from that. Proverbs says, The desire of the righteous ends only in good. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. You don't want to do business with a partner who is going to lead you astray, do you? You want an honest business partner. Proverbs also says in chapter 13 and verse 5, The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked bring shame and disgrace. It's because of the righteous that we have Cornerstone Rescue Mission, Black Hills Pregnancy Center, that we have Love, Inc., and all those organizations around the country of the similar shape and fashion. Because Proverbs 29 says, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Proverbs 29.2, the last one. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, people groan. We live at a time where even as flawed and messed up as our world is, there are still remnants of good things that have their fingerprints across society. And we all have the blessing of those things. But I wonder if that is all we're concerned about. You see, what Jesus does is he rebukes these Jewish leaders for enjoying John's ministry and the transformation that's taking place and the fact that people are now coming to synagogue and wanting to learn the scriptures. And he says, you like the fruit, but you have no interest in the message. I think it lands on us in a way. Because we long for golden old days. We long for a little more peace, a little more tranquility, a little more goodness. But we are willing to trade everything for that rather than the genuine gospel message. Friend, let that not be what deceives you. Jesus goes on in verse 36. He shows the supernatural signs. Here's his third witness. He says, you guys received John with joy. Let me just tell you, you would have even greater joy if you welcomed me on the basis of John's witness. So he's he's presented two witnesses, the divine divine witness in the Father, and now the human witness in John. And look what he does in verse 36. He just skips over this. So we have to unpack it a little bit. Jesus did supernatural things. He did things only God could do. If you go back to verse 8 of chapter 5, you were reminded as chapter 5 opens that Jesus goes into um, the city of Jerusalem and he he passes by an area called Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda. And there's invalids around this pool. Verse 5 tells us there was a man there 
who had been an invalid for 38 years. Do you think that guy tried to get better? You think he spent some money on seeing a physician? You think he went to a chiropractor? You think he went to the doctor? Went to the health clinic? No doubt. But for 38 years, there was no hope for him. Verse 8 says, Jesus told him to get up, take up your bed and walk. And verse 9 tells us, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that's all John says, but you can go to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can see the incredible things that Jesus does. In fact, chapter 6, we're about to see it next week. He feeds 5,000 people from a snack lunch. Jesus does things only God can do. He healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and he did it with his words. There's no mention of him laying hands on him, putting some balm, giving him braces for his legs. No canes or crutches. He told him to get up and walk, and immediately those atrophied muscles, those nerves that didn't function, those joints that were stiff, were all loosened, and he was made whole. Jesus told us in verse 19, he only does what he's seen the Father do. And now in verse 36, we are the ones who benefit from such a powerful testimony. Jesus, friend, Jesus is God. That's the testimony of Scripture. The signs that he did, coupled with the testimony of John, coupled with the testimony of the Creator, Coupled with the word of God, these testify to these truths. And know this, you reject those witnesses, you are rejecting your very creator. According to God's law, Jesus presented a winning argument. Two to three witnesses were all that was required, and he presented three. And now as we look at verses 37 through 47, we see he declares the guilt of his audience because they hear, but they don't believe. Let's read, beginning in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What we need to consider here is the gap that we are presented with between ourselves and God. There are three irrefutable witnesses that testify to Christ Jesus being sent from Father in order to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And now we're confronted as he pivots from defending the fact that he healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to take his mat and walk when they believed no work was going to be done on the Sabbath or ought to be done, and that carrying his bed was the wrong thing. Jesus pivots from defending his divine authority and power to now becoming a prosecutor who shows all of us this unbridgeable gap between ourselves and God. And the only hope that we have is to believe in Christ. So let's look at these. As Jesus highlights the gap between God and his, quote, people. He calls them, he reminds them that they have rejected the divine testimony in verses 37 and 38. Father sent Jesus to bear witness about Jesus' origins, his purpose, his ministry. 
Now, the leaders rejected God's testimony, and Jesus points that out in verse, the last part of verse 37 and verse 38. Notice the three things he says. Here's three accusations, right? He's presented three positive witnesses. Now we see three negatives. You don't know the voice of God. You have never seen God. You don't have God's word in you. Moses heard God's voice, we're told in Exodus 33, 11. But these Jews have God in flesh standing in front of them, and they refuse to hear his voice. I'd encourage you to take some time this afternoon to reflect on Psalm 29, as it highlights the power of the voice of God over and over. Creation listens to him. They've never seen God's form, but who did in the Old Testament? Jacob wrestled an entire night with God in Genesis 32. Yet the Jewish leaders, they reject the very God who's in flesh in front of them. They don't have God's word in them. The psalmist did. Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. But they've rejected the living word. Because they rejected the Father's word, they do not believe in the one the Father has sent. What's the point? Jesus wants them to understand that you have to believe the Father's testimony about the Son in order to believe the Son. There's no shortcuts. The reality is, it's equally impossible for us to do it today as it was for them. I'm standing here in a room filled with people. And do you understand how weak preaching is I'm trying to make an argument and you're distracted rightly so by all kinds of things I'm not that persuasive I'm not a great rhetoric guy I'm not Ronald Reagan who can write speeches that I remember as a kid just being like oh wow that makes sense the foolishness of preaching the vehicle by which God has ordained, where his word is opened in the midst of his people, and then it is spoken over his people, and it's unpacked over his people. That weakness is all we have. And God says that his spirit can take that word and he can put it in our heart. And he gives us an understanding that illuminates our whole minds. The impossibility of believing in Jesus by accident, or even by the three witnesses that he's just given, is equally as difficult today as it was in his day. They saw him, and we can all say, you know what, if I was there, I would have been with Jesus. I would have been like Peter 2.0. I'm telling you, if we were there, we would have been just like Judas probably. We play the part, we look good, and then at the end, we cash out. The reality is, in his own physical manhood and nature, standing in front of them, they rejected the things he said. No one seeks after God, Romans 3.11 says. We are all dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2.1 says. We innately have no interest in spiritual things, so how is it that anyone can be saved? We must believe the Father's testimony. I can't make it any clearer than this. You believe what God says, and God imputes a righteousness, an alien righteousness to you. He gives you a good balance sheet that only Jesus has. That's it. Talking with children that you're raising in your home, it is simply trust God. That's it. We have no other recourse. We are 2,000 years removed from this. There are no living witnesses. So we must also cast ourselves on the fact that there is 
certainly signs in nature. All nature testifies to the glory of God. The psalmist speaks of that. Paul speaks of that in Romans 1. There are indications that there is a divine being by the majesty and the mystery of what we live in. And yet, we need revelation and praise God that he has given it to us. He's given it to us in his word and in his own son. And we trust in that. You may say, well, that's a weak faith. Call it what you want. It's all I have. And I will bet my life on it. Because if it's not true, you are right to pity us as Christians. We have been deceived. We are abstaining from all kinds of temporal pleasures that could make this horrible existence on this beautiful round orb any better. We walk away from that stuff because, and we spend our lives for the sake of the gospel. We donate our time on evenings and weekends to come to church, to do VBS, to go overseas and share the gospel. Yes, you are right to pity us as Christians if it's not true. But I would argue, man, whatever sacrifices are made as a result of the gospel in this world pale in comparison to the suffering if it is wrong, if it is true. Jesus is the one who can cleanse us from our sin and present us as holy to the Lord. I'd encourage you, if you're thinking this morning and your heart is somewhat stirred and provoked by what's been said, take time to talk to the Christian around you. If you came with someone, ask them some questions. On the back of your bulletin, our, our faces of the eight elders that we have here at South Canyon. Contact them and say, let's get together for coffee. i got questions for you. Help me make sense of this. How is it that people who are committed to the law, as the Jewish leaders were, could miss what is right in front of them? Well, let's look at verses 39 through 42. First, in verses 39 and 40, I think there's two ways they can do this. First, they believe they can save themselves. And second, they pursue self-glory and do not love God. How is it that people who could be in the very presence of God, disguised as a humble carpenter from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, yeah, he's got a large family, but this Jesus is some kind of a freak. He's saying a lot of crazy things about himself. But man, we all have seen this dude sitting here at the temple. I mean, I've only been coming through here for six years, but he's there every day. Well, I heard he's been here for 20. Well, I've heard he's been here for 38 years. And now he's up walking? How's that possible? They believed they could save themselves. They're renowned for their astuteness in studying and interpreting and applying the scriptures. And notice, Jesus doesn't condemn them for doing that. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Studying God's word is good. What Jesus challenges them on is not their practice or their methods, but their purpose. You see that? They do so, according to verse 39, because they think that in the scriptures... They can save themselves. And what does Jesus mean by that? They, they believe that by mastering the scriptures, knowing them chapter and verse, in fact, it's, we are told that for a, uh, a Pharisee, they would have to memorize all five books of Moses' law. I mean, we're struggling, aren't we? I confess. I asked Lyle or uh, Leonard to join me in memorizing our scripture memory verse. Because I've not been doing it on my own. Can you imagine memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament in their entirety? That's a lot of work. <clears throat> they were committed to mastering the scriptures and their oral traditions because their purpose was not to know God, but to master him. To get to such a place in their lives where they could say, God, now you owe me this because of all these things that I've done. They were not reading the Bible as it was intended. And this is not, this problem didn't die off with these people. It's true today. I mean, you think about how many churches and seminaries and even public universities are filled with people who've given themselves to mastering the scriptures 
but refuse to be mastered by them. We see it in false religions and cults. People who will take the word of God, they will twist it in order to oppress people. In order to extort things from people. And to exploit people. So don't be surprised that people miss Jesus when they approach the scriptures with their own goal. Jesus states, there's nothing intrinsically life-giving by studying scripture. Now, I just, maybe if you're still awake, I just shocked you a little bit. There's nothing life-giving intrinsically in studying the scriptures. Aren't we a church that's about the Bible? I mean, don't we come together every week to listen to 35 minutes on a good day? 45, maybe 50 minutes of the Bible? What in the world? Well, understand, hear me. The scriptures, the Old Testament, they point to Jesus. They predict his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. But both Jesus here and Paul in Romans 7.10 are clear that the law cannot give life. The law does not save. The law reveals sin And the law condemns us as lawbreakers. Paul says in Galatians 3.21, the law cannot give life. That's what I mean. They were using the scriptures in order to achieve eternal life. And Jesus is telling them that is a dead end. There's no saving value in that. What does he say? Look at verse 40. Jesus say, <clears throat> excuse me, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Where is life located? Who is the giver of life? Well, Jesus says very clearly it's him. This isn't the only time he said it in our passage. If you look at verse 21 and 26, we're told that the Father has given the Son the power of life. Only Jesus can raise those who are dead in their sins and give them life, Romans 10.4. So friend, let me just tell you, your discipline, your devotion to living a certain way in order to somehow master God and kind of arm wrestle him to the point where he says, okay man, you've done it. You've got the golden ticket. Let me just tell you, you need to stop trying to live by your self-righteousness and instead Trust in Jesus. We see that they can miss what's right in front of them because they believe they can save themselves. And now we see in verses 41 and 42, they actually aren't even interested in anything that's related to God. They want the glory of people. They do not love God. Jesus, for his part, isn't interested in earning their accolades. He knows that that would require him to turn away from God's plans if he were to somehow conform to the Savior they wanted him to be. It would mean he would have to lower himself. Jesus has made it clear there's no gap between he and God. Now he states that they don't really love God, which is why they can't and won't accept Jesus. Remember, chapter 2 and verse 24, Jesus knows the thoughts of men. He knows they love God darkness John 3:19 and one of the most telling marks of someone who is trying to save themselves is the effort that they will give to force God to fit into their system rather than seeking God first and this is such a testimony that Jesus is holding true he is not moved away from God by their accusations, nor is he enticed to move away from God if men were to start praising him. His security flows from his relationship with the Father. I want to just take a brief moment and just encourage you, Christian, to pray for such a security. We do live in some really tumultuous times. We often feel like even on our best day, we fall far short of the glory of God. Even when we're trying to do the right for the right reasons. 
not to earn salvation, but as a result from it. I mean, when a dad spoils his kids with some big thing, they all want to obey him. Anytime it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you've just given me this great gift. I'll do anything for you. That is, that's the righteous response to grace. We want to obey God. And sometimes we don't feel that security. So whether you're struggling or not, each Christian should seek the Lord. He promises to give us comfort and peace in his presence. He alone has the power to keep you strong and secure, whether you are suffering for the faith or you are facing physical or mental health challenges or whether there are relational difficulties in your home or your family or there are financial worries, what would cause people to ignore such powerful witnesses as the Father, as John, as the signs? What would cause them to ignore the words of Scripture and the works of Jesus? There's a threefold answer in verses 43 through 45 as we wind things down. First, there is a stubborn rejection of God's truth. Verse 43. I mentioned already Deuteronomy 19.15 the law required testimony for two or three witnesses to establish truth. Jesus has done that. He's proven he's telling the truth but yet they reject him. And yet they would happily receive the testimony of a single person coming in his own name. You see the hypocrisy there? Their stubborn hearts will not allow them to believe. We see, secondly, not only is there a stubborn rejection of God's truth, but there is a consuming desire for self-glory in verse 44. Whereas Jesus sought only to please the Father, these men were coveting, lusting after the praise of men. They wanted people to pat them on their back for being so smart. And the fact that, oh man, you found that little nugget in Scripture and you interpreted all these things. You know how to apply the law in all these different categories. You are the Bible answer man. You win the trophy every time. And that is what they wanted, the praise of men for their discipline. They weren't interested in exchanging the glory of man in order to pursue the glory of God. Verse 45, we see that they were all about a system that promised a self-made salvation. Verse 45, I'm going to read it again. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. They do not hope in God, folks. Their confidence is somehow unlocking the code to Moses' law so that they can live it out and get a salvation that is never promised in the law. Jesus declared that Moses will accuse them before God on the last day. And it's not for the failure to keep the commandments. It's for this failure. They missed Jesus in the Scriptures. How bankrupt is any and every religion that does not know who Jesus is? And worship him in all his truth, his beauty, and glory. You see, the law's purpose, as I said a moment ago, was to expose our sins so that we cry out for salvation. These men, they rejected the need for grace. They put their hope in their abilities. And over time, they substituted a man-made religion for spiritual transformation. The fact that they don't love God is seen by the fact that they keep heaping burdens on people. And telling them what wicked people they are instead of giving them hope. In their mind, keeping the law was the way to eternal life. Jesus says, not so. Here's here's what D.A. Carson says. I think it's really profound. The chief punishment of the liar is not so much that he is not believed, but that he does not believe. Similarly, the chief judgment on those who deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, is not so much that they have no Messiah, 
but that they follow false messiahs. You see this? When you move away from the truth of Scripture, you open yourself up to another system. Another belief system will occupy that space. And then you have the desperate and sad reality of worshiping a false Messiah that will bring you no hope. This is why we preach the whole counsel of God. Look at verses 46 through 47. I believe that Jesus closed his pivot from his defense to his prosecution with a word of hope in verse 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus is saying, Moses did speak of me, and if you actually listen to what Moses is saying, you would accept me. To reject Moses is to reject Jesus. To reject the Father's witness is to reject Jesus. To reject John's witness is to reject Jesus. To mark all these supernatural signs as just some accident is to reject Jesus. He points out two realities that we have to wrestle with, each and every one of us individually. First, there is the element of truth. Maybe you've forgotten what Philip says in John 1.45. He goes to Nathaniel and he says, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You see, it wasn't that hard to see Jesus in the Old Testament. The scriptures speak of Jesus. John in his gospel will point it out in six different occasions. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, and verse 3, right here. Uh, Nope, sorry, not verse 3. I wrote down the wrong quote. You will also find it in chapter uh, 5, verse 45 and 46, again in chapter 20 and verse 9. You see, the Old Testament spoke of Jesus like this, sometimes not just clean and plain, but in a sacrificial system where a guilt or a sin offering had to be offered. It it had to continually be offered, right? Because we continually sin. But Jesus is the sacrifice. That day of atonement that showed up every year on the calendar for the Jews showed up every year on the calendar for Jews. It pointed to the fact that we need a salvation that is eternal, and Jesus provides that. The Passover lamb that spared the lives of all who sought refuge under its blood points to Jesus. The Sabbath rest points to a rest that's fulfilled in Jesus, a rest from works under the law. The greater prophet Moses speaks of, here's another thing you should read this afternoon, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. Moses himself speaks of a day when a prophet greater than he will arise and how you can know who it is and what you ought to do in response to his words. Here's the spoiler. You're to listen to him and you're to believe him. The very thing these people are struggling with. These are just a sampling of the many ways in which Moses' writing pointed to Jesus. Here's a second reality that Jesus points out in these verses. Not only is there a need for truth, but there's a need for belief. We are not just talking this morning. We're not saying just agree with these mental thoughts, agree with these truths. We are saying you need to put your personal confidence in them. You need to trust them to the core of who you are. It's a belief that calls us to have a personal trust in Jesus and a rejection of everything else. It's it's a belief that requires us to center our lives around who Jesus is. Maybe you're tired of dealing with people who say they're telling you the truth and whether it's politicians, religious leaders, or the people around you and they You do your homework and you investigate the claims they make and you realize they have just reshaped facts in order to support their argument. They're, in fact, telling you lies, masking them as truth. And so you become skeptical. Or you've been taught in our day and age to reject the notion of any absolute truth. And what's postmodernism? And it's led to relativism so that my truth is absolute, your truth is absolute. What do we do when they conflict? Well, that's where we live now. Postmodernism 
from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and early 2000s has now led us to a place of deconstructionism where there is no truth. Any idea of logic or uh, relevance, any idea of right and wrong, is all to be torn down because they're human constructs. Logic and reason, science, religion, it's all man-made, and it must be destroyed in order that we are freed from it. Well, let me just say, wherever you are this morning, Jesus' day was a lot like our own. And I can prove it in John chapter 18. He has this interchange with Pilate, who was the Roman governor, the day that he was crucified. Jesus says, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Based on the testimony of Scripture, and I urge you to wrestle with Jesus' testimony, he is either speaking the truth or he is a lunatic. There is no middle ground. Jesus says, if you do not believe his writings, relate in verse 47, but you how will you believe my words? I think there's a word of hope here, and it's because if appears in that sentence. It's a conditional clause which indicates change is possible. He didn't say, because you don't believe Moses, you can't believe me. That's not what he said. He says, if you don't believe, how will you believe me? I'm just saying this is the day. This is the point in time where you can change the course of your future by trusting in God. Friend, there's time. I believe in Jesus. As sent from the Father in order to save us and give us eternal life. I believe in Jesus. South Canyon Baptist Church believes in Jesus. Will you? Lord, we pray for understanding. We know this pushes back on so many things we've been taught, so many of our own default settings, that we must wrestle with the holiness of God and that we are indeed declared unrighteous. Father, we pray that you would help those who may be struggling with what it means to trust Jesus to take that step of faith to follow you in obedience by confessing that he is who he says he is. We pray that your spirit would convince of this truth. No human argument has the power to do what your spirit alone can do. We pray for salvations. We pray that Christians will be grounded in the truth too. So as our students in our church head out to universities, as they go into the workforce, that they would not be swayed by the philosophies of our age, that they would be grounded in the truth. I believe in Jesus. We pray all this, Lord, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Help us now to walk in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.